Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Most of us think there's nothing new to say about nuclear weapons. Yes, they're horrible, possibly immoral, and definitely dangerous, but they feel necessary. If force is the final arbiter between nations and nuclear bombs are the most powerful weapons, then we're basically stuck with them, are we not? In his new book, Five Myths About Nuclear Weapons, Ward Wilson says that much of what we believe about nuclear weapons is based on emotion and exaggeration. He argues that our current nuclear policy is shaped by five stubborn myths that nuclear weapons shock and awe opponents, that nuclear deterrence is effective in a crisis, that killing civilians causes leaders to back down, that the bomb has kept the peace for 65 years, and that we can't put the nuclear genie back in the bottle. His conclusion? Nuclear weapons are enormously dangerous, but don't appear to be terribly useful. In that case, he asks, why would we want to keep them? Ward Wilson is a senior fellow at the Center for Nonproliferation Studies of the Monterey Institute of International Studies, and he's coming to Utah for an appearance tomorrow evening, 7 o'clock, in the Salt Lake City Public Library. This is presented by the Utah Humanities Council in collaboration with Heal Utah and the Utah Campaign Against Nuclear Weapons. Ward Wilson, welcome to the program. Thank you, Tom. It's really a pleasure to be there, and I'm really looking forward to being in Utah tomorrow and having a chance to... uh look around a little bit, see Salt Lake City, and meet some people. I'm, I'm really excited. Uh, your, uh, your thesis is very interesting, um, and, you know, it's, it's gotten a lot of press. I think it has some potential to, to, to reframe the way we think about this. Um, and uh, you quote Freeman Dyson in the, in the front of the book, that it's, it's necessary to be afraid of the nuclear weapons, but it's not sufficient. We need to have understanding. I suppose that's, that's what your book is about, trying to understand. It's, um, you know, I, I got started on nuclear weapons when I was a kid, and I immediately thought that I was going to come up with stronger moral arguments against them. And I, I thought that for about a year, till I realized that, you know, if a weapon is necessary, then probably necessity will, will trump morality. But eventually I got interested in some of the pragmatic questions about whether or not the weapons are useful or how useful they are. And it turns out particularly because of some uh, research that's been done over the last 20 years, historical research. They just haven't been that useful. And there are real questions about their utility rather than, I mean, we all know they're immoral, but the, the fundamental question is whether they're, they're actually that useful. And, and there are doubts about that. And you say fear and necessity pull in opposite directions. Yeah. Um, obviously, we, you know, we're... We don't want to get rid of anything that's necessary, uh, even if we're afraid of it. But uh, I think um, I think if you explore the necessity question, if you explore the pragmatic side of nuclear weapons, then it's a different it's a different conversation. Mm-hmm. And you you say you point out that it's 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 strong emotions. Uh, uh, and I remember, I, I kind of was on the tail end of, of this, but I remember drills where they had you get under your desk. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, I don't know what that was going to do against nuclear weapons, but uh, <laughs> yeah. you had to do something, I suppose. <laughs> I know. There are, nuclear weapons are um, powerful in part because they affect us so much because they bring out so much emotion. And for years and years, particularly during the Cold War, it warped the debate. Um, people were afraid and it warped their judgment and, uh, and they desperately wanted the weapons to work to protect them. And so they, they indulged in a little bit of wishful thinking about how effective they were and how, um, 
how reliable nuclear deterrence was going to be. You have an interesting example in the book, the um, the Berlin airlift, the, the you know the the crisis in what was it 45 46 48 48 yeah yep. okay i'm off <laughs> way <laughs> no, off but right um, after, no right after the war yes and you know so people there's a lot of selective evidence in the arguments for nuclear weapons proponents of nuclear weapons point to the 48 airlift and they say uh well you know obviously uh nuclear deterrence worked because Truman sent some bombers to England. Everybody thought they were nuclear capable. They actually weren't. And, uh, and it was seen as an implicit threat of nuclear war if things escalated. And things didn't escalate. So proponents of nuclear weapons say, see, it worked. But they don't address the question of what Stalin could possibly have been thinking. It's, it's 1948. It's a year before the Soviet Union is going to get the bomb. So the U.S. has a world monopoly on these weapons. And yet here Stalin is starting a crisis where military forces are going to face off against each other and anything could happen. It could easily escalate to war. If he had really been afraid of nuclear weapons, if deterrence means you see the risk of nuclear war, and then you pull back from risky and aggressive actions. How do we explain Stalin starting this crisis? And that's information that is usually not talked about when people talk about, oh, deterrence worked in all the Cold War crises. So uh, why did uh, why did we change history in, in our minds? Did, did we so want that to be a deterrent that that that's why we started thinking differently about this? Absolutely. You know, when you're, when you're afraid and you've got this big weapon and everyone says you have to have them, you try to think of reasons why it must be okay. To, I mean, think about, um, think about some people living on an island with a volcano that explodes, and then they start to worship the volcano, and they know it's strong and they know it's powerful, and then over time, it doesn't explode, and they think, oh, it's working. And then they start to think, well, actually, the volcano protects me. I mean, I, I am not a, I'm a historian. I'm not that strong on psychology. But it seems to me that when you're really afraid, you look for signs that something is protecting you. Mm. I want to get into these five myths that you uh you set out and you, you, you debunk uh, specifically. Um, I wonder where we are now with it. It, it seems to me, uh, I don't know, I, I guess you worry about uh, a terrorist with a nuclear bomb in a suitcase uh, kind of a thing, and, and that is horrible. But I don't know if we're inured to, the, to that fear Well, at this point. I, see, I'm, as a historian, I don't, I've, Terrorist terrorism bombs are, you know, a real threat, and um, they could happen. Um, it's it's relatively difficult to build a miniaturized nuclear weapon, so you'd probably have to have a terrorist that stole one or was given one um, by a nuclear weapon state. They're working on ways to trace back from the radioactive signature to see if they can identify where the uranium or the plutonium came from. So they're, they're trying to develop the field of nuclear forensics. But what I really worry about is not a terrorist. Uh, as a historian, I know that war is a stubborn, 
accompaniment to human civilization. We've been through a really long period of peace, and that's enormously good news, and we should all be grateful. But you can't read the history of humanity and not know that war comes relatively regularly. And the more nuclear weapons there are spread around, the greater the chance that someone somewhere will think that they can get an advantage by using a nuclear weapon. And then, and then you risk an all-out nuclear war. And that's, that is what really concerns me, is the risk of war. Mm. And it's still, you know, mass annihilation still still possible. Sure. Um, you, you, uh, you cite, and I, I guess you'd have to in a, in a book like this, Dr. Strangelove. Yeah, the, the movie, which is which is a, a darkly funny movie, but yeah. but has some serious um, themes, and then the subtitle is "How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb." Yeah, isn't that interesting? And uh, that gets that gets me to thinking about how we, I don't know, it's just hard for us to hold that thought to deal with that thought of mass human annihilation. Yeah, it's a part of the problem with thinking about nuclear weapons is that it makes you so uncomfortable and it's so. Um, they used to call it unthinkable in the 60s, although I think, you know, that that you have to think about it. Um, so and 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 part of the natural response to uh, something that you can't do anything about is to put it out of your mind. I mean, there's nothing I can do about a meteor hurting, hurtling out of outer space and smacking down on the exact spot where I am and killing me. It could happen. Relatively small chance, but it could happen. I mean, what was that meteor that fell out of the sky into Russia, I guess, oh, yeah. last year, the year yeah, before? Recently. So it's possible, but do you worry about it? No, you put it out of your mind. And I think what people would do with nuclear weapons is that same thing. They put it out of their minds because they think they're necessary weapons. And you, you say that, that opponents of nuclear weapons have probably appropriately, used horror, moral outrage as arguments. They've said humanity needs to fundamentally change its nature. You're, mm-hmm. you're arguing for a more pra- pragmatic yeah, I think if we get caught up in emotion, um, we're more liable to make mistakes. And what we need to do is look at nuclear weapons clear-eyed and say, are they useful? And if they really are useful, then we have to keep them and, and go on as, as we have been. But I think that if you look closely, you'll see two things. One is that <clears throat> their size doesn't necessarily make them useful. And here... I like to, um, and the other is that nuclear deterrence is not that reliable. But the size thing, I was in a lumberyard once, and uh, there's a lot of macho undertone in lumberyards. And um, you can imagine, as a historian, I'm I kind of do some home projects, but I'm not really. And I'm looking around. I'm standing. We're waiting for some wood to come. I'm looking around, and there's a really big hammer on the rack. And I say to the guy, that must be the hammer for the real pros. And he looks at me like he's deciding whether he's going to tell me the truth or not. And he says, no, that's the hammer for the real idiots. That hammer is so big and so heavy, it'll destroy your elbow in 20 minutes. And it's just the same with nuclear weapons. We imagine that because they're big, that therefore they're the best. But weapons are like tools. The question is, do you have the right tool for the job? There's almost no circumstance in which a nuclear weapon is the right tool for the job. You, 99% of targets in war, I would guess, are building-sized or smaller. 
And, you know, if you drop a nuclear weapon on a building, you're going to destroy three-quarters of the city along with it. Why, why would you want to do that? We have developed such accurate weapons that um, the destructive power of nuclear weapons almost never is useful. We're going to take a brief break. When we come back, we'll uh, get into each of these five myths that Ward Wilson says are myths. And if we look at this in a clear-eyed fashion, we'll see that that, uh, perhaps this leads us to a conclusion that nuclear weapons aren't all that useful. That, he hopes, will lead us to the next and more important conclusion, that why would we want them, that uh, buttress the idea of... uh, uh, non-proliferation and uh, and getting rid of uh, nuclear weapons. Ward Wilson is uh, coming to Utah. He's uh, being presented by the Utah Humanities Council in collaboration with Heal Utah and Utah Campaign Against Nuclear Weapons. And he'll be appearing at the Salt Lake City Public Library tomorrow evening at 7 p.m., free and open to the public. Ward Wilson is a senior fellow at the Center for Nonproliferation Studies of the Monterey Institute of International Studies. The book is Five Myths About Nuclear Weapons. More following the break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread at 300 South and 300 West in Logan, now open Monday through Saturday until 2 with a changing menu of specialty salads, French breakfast pastries with local seasonal fruits, and lunch sandwiches. Dr. Zorba Pastor from Zorba Pastor on Your Health is coming to Utah. And you're invited to his free presentation, Living a Long Sweet Life, at the Logan Regional Hospital on Thursday, October 17th. The presentation includes lunch, but space is limited, so register now at upr.org. Zorba Pastor will headline other events in Logan and Moab. You can find out more about those at upr.org. Zorba Pastor's visit to Logan is sponsored by Intermountain Logan Regional Hospital. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking with Ward Wilson, who is a senior fellow at the Center for Nonproliferation Studies of the Monterey Institute of International Studies. We're talking about nuclear weapons. Ward Wilson says much of what we believe about nuclear weapons has come to be conventional wisdom is based on emotion and exaggeration. He argues that uh, our current nuclear policy is shaped by five stubborn myths. We're going to get into those next. And you are welcome to join this conversation. The number is 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495. You can join us by email to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com, or to our Utah Public Radio Facebook page. That's where Global Zero responded. They said, very interesting. Thank you for sharing to our post about this. Uh, Global Zero is a international movement for elimination of all nuclear weapons worldwide, is what they say. And uh, we have uh, several likes for this post. Global Zero, Global Zero France, and Aaron Girardi. So thanks for those responses. And you can... uh, um, interact with us in this program. Love to get your uh, response, perhaps your uh, your feelings, your history with this. I mentioned that I was of the generation, tail end of the generation that uh, got under my desk uh, on those drills, and we we thought about bomb shelters and the like. It's a different world, but we still are worrying about uh, nuclear weapons. So, Ward Wilson, um, this first myth is one that I 
perhaps, I guess, if I think about it, have subscribed to nuclear weapons, shock and awe opponents. And uh, the main idea here is the Japanese surrender. They were stubbornly refusing to surrender, even though we'd firebombed, I don't know how many cities. And after two nuclear bombs, lo and behold, they surrender. Yeah, it's the most controversial of the of the myths. And um, I have to say, when I grew up, I... I was certain that the nuclear weapons forced Japan to surrender as well. But the, what's happened is that in the last 20 years, historians have done research and archives in Japan and Russia and the U.S. And what's emerging is a kind of a surprising but, but a pretty clear uh, case that Japan's leaders uh, were not concerned about one more city being bombed. They had 68 cities bombed that summer. Um, but when another great power joined the war, the Soviet Union, on uh, aug- the night of August 8th, 9th, 9th, 10th, sorry, no, 8th, 9th, um, they, uh, bringing one point, well, two million men, new men, into the battle, and uh, very uh, large numbers of uh, armored forces and so on, um, it shocked them, and uh, it changed the strategic realities of the war for them. And that was why they really surrendered, not because of the bombing of Hiroshima. Of course, we have a very strong, again, emotional reaction to Hiroshima, because for 40 years, people have been arguing about whether or not it was right or wrong to bomb Hiroshima. And it's too bad, and I don't deal with that question because, you know, um, the, the, that is fundamentally a question that's not about nuclear weapons. That's about whether or not the United States is good or bad. I, I happen to think we're a pretty good country. I think everybody makes mistakes and does bad things. I think we do it right most of the time. And so I, I'm not interested in, in the question about whether the U.S. is bad or not. But I want to know whether nuclear weapons work. Do they force governments to surrender? Do they have a special ability to coerce and deter opponents? Hmm. The evidence just seems to be that they, they didn't have that effect on Japan. And since Hiroshima and Nagasaki are the only field test of these weapons, suddenly we have to face the fact that the, all the conclusions that we drew from this one field test are now exactly backwards. You know, we, we got it wrong. I suppose you, the, following your argument, um, a, you firebomb a city or you bomb it with a nuclear bomb, you're going to, in either case, totally destroy that city. The end result is the same. And in fact, if you chart all 68 cities and look at the number of people killed, Hiroshima is not first, second. Tokyo killed more people, a conventional attack. If you chart all 68 cities and look at the square miles destroyed, Hiroshima is sixth. Five conventional attacks destroyed more square miles. If you chart the percentage of the city destroyed, Hiroshima is 17th. Actually, Toyama, a smaller town of about 30,000, about the size of Chattanooga at, at that time, um, was 99.5% destroyed, essentially leveled the entire city. So, I suppose the difference in nuclear weapons, this perhaps gets into our imagination and our fears, is, is, is the aftermath, of the, the radiation poisoning and such. Right. Radiation uh, increased the number of casualties 
at Hiroshima and Nagasaki as time went on. But Japan's leaders made their decision based on the initial death toll, which was about a third of the population at Hiroshima and considerably less at Nagasaki. Let's move to the next one. The nuclear deterrence is effective in a crisis. You say this is a myth. That there, there is sort of a conventional wisdom that's built up, not only the Berlin crisis, but other crises during the Cold War, a sort of a paradoxical idea of a crisis stability that was yeah. established by the presence of nuclear weapons. Yeah. Well, so the thing is, nuclear deterrence probably works some of the time. Certainly ordinary deterrence, where you try to deter criminals with the death penalty, for instance, it probably works some of the time. The problem is that with nuclear weapons, some of the time isn't good enough, because any use of nuclear weapons could lead to a catastrophic nuclear war. So for nuclear weapons, you could say failure is not an option. So nuclear deterrence has to be completely reliable. And the problem is that if you go back over the Cold War crises and look at them, clearly isn't. Um, Cuban Missile Crisis is kind of the standard story that proponents tell about nuclear weapons. But um, And they say, the Soviets put the missiles into Cuba, there was a risk of nuclear war, and then they took them out. But that doesn't, that doesn't cover what Kennedy decided. Kennedy looked at the missiles in Cuba... He knew that if he blockaded the island, that he ran the risk of nuclear war, but then he did it anyway. And if deterrence means you see the risk of nuclear war and then you pull back from risky or aggressive actions, that's, that's clearly a failure of deterrence. Hmm. And, so, and, and we know that we avoided war in the Cuban Missile Crisis because of luck, not because deterrence works like magic because of the U-2 incident. Just real quickly, there was a U-2 that flew off course over the Soviet Union, and they scrambled MiGs to shoot it down, and we scrambled F-102 fighters to protect it and escort it back. Except that it was the height of the Cuban Missile Crisis. So they'd removed the conventional air-to-air missiles from the F-102s and put stronger, more powerful nuclear Falcon missiles on those. The only weapons they had were nuclear. So if they had tangled with the Soviet fighters over Russia, there'd have been a nuclear explosion over Russia and probably nuclear war. They didn't find each other. So we didn't have a nuclear war. But that was just luck. That wasn't because deterrence worked like magic or something. The third myth of uh, five myths about nuclear weapons, that's the book, by the way, we're talking to Ward Wilson, is that killing civilians causes leaders to back down. Yeah, I I went back over history and I looked for a war in which um, someone killed civilians and then the other side won the war or even destroyed a city and then, you know, they won the war. I just couldn't find any. You know, if you... um, no one likes to kill civilians in war. We're all horrified when, when they are killed. But um, there just doesn't seem to be a lot of impact in wartime um, on leaders' decision-making. They, they're really concerned about military victory and the military forces. So bombing, what's, what nuclear weapons do best, which is destroy civilians in large numbers, is what matters least in war. What matters is killing the other side's army 
disabling it in some way. So that the, the, this killing civilians is, is just sort of a horrible byproduct of 20th yeah. century war? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah it's, it's, it is tragic. Uh, the fourth myth you cite, the bomb has kept the peace for 65 years. This is a very enduring idea that uh, the bomb is horrible, but it's helped keep the peace. Well, and it kind of makes some sense because we haven't, we in the United States haven't had any wars, and we certainly haven't fought with Russia. There's been no nuclear war, so that kind of seems like evidence. But, you know, it's, uh, the problem is that it's proof by absence. Proof by absence is, uh, you know, when something doesn't happen and you try to figure out why it didn't happen. It's really hard because there are so many factors that go into anything. Um, I talk about the virgins in the volcano. Uh, so, again, you know, you have a volcano that explodes, and then a, um, I don't know why I'm obsessed with volcanoes. <laughs> you have a, a religious guy who says, well, we can prevent this by throwing a virgin in the volcano, and they do it, and it doesn't explode for a year, and then everyone says it works. And so they keep throwing virgins in until the next time the mountain explodes. Just because we haven't had war doesn't mean that it could be that NATO has kept the peace. It could be that closer business ties and economic integration has kept the peace. It could be the television and the fact that we can watch other people's news all around the world has brought us closer and reduced war. It could be, well, and the other thing is that there are just periods of peace in war. I mean, it's in, in history. So that uh, there's been no war in Latin America between Latin American countries for 72 years. But that doesn't prove anything one way or the other about nuclear weapons. It's, it's great that there's been no war in Europe or be, uh, between the U.S. and the Soviet Union and Russia. But we should leap to the conclusion. And again, the problem is we're risking so much by putting our faith in nuclear weapons. We ought to be sure that it really works rather than just hoping that that's why it's working. We're talking with Ward Wilson, if you just joined us. Uh, his book is Five Myths About Nuclear Weapons. Ward Wilson is a senior fellow at the Center for Nonproliferation Studies of the Monterey Institute of International Studies and the Utah Humanities Council in collaboration with Heal Utah and the Utah Campaign Against Nuclear Weapons is presenting Ward Wilson at the Salt Lake City Public Library. He'll be there tomorrow evening at 7 o'clock. That appearance is free and open to the uh, public. So you're you're saying that uh, the fact that we avoided nuclear wars is in part just dumb luck. Yeah. Uh, of course, that's not reassuring. It's, no. Uh, <laughs> we've had this idea of, of kind of a rational thought process, and you've cited several examples of what you could call irrational thought pro- processes on on our side, the West, you know, and from the the Russian side, the the East. Uh, so this idea of mutually assured destruction, uh, do. Did that play in at all? Well, I'm sure that it had some effect. You know, uh, danger affects people's choices. But the fact is, people do stupid things all the time. Barbara Tuckman wrote, a historian, wrote a wonderful book called The March of Folly. She talks about tremendous mistakes that nations have made in wartime. And it's just the case that, you know, uh, people do stupid and foolhardy things. And so, um, 
if human beings were really rational, then nuclear weapons would be much, much safer. Mm-hmm. But we're not. I, I've been doing some reading in neuroscience recently, and, uh, you know, they really, neuroscientists really believe that the conscious part of our brains, the rational part, is really relatively small percentage that, uh, you know, we're, I don't know, 80% emotion and 20% rationality or something. I, I made that up, but but some large percentage is just emotion. If that's so, and we're relying on rationality to make sure that deterrence works, that's an enormous risk. Mm. There, I don't know where they put this in the rational camp or irrational camp. Uh, North Korea, if you look at it rationally, from their point of view, it looks like they've got some advantages by pursuing nuclear weapons. Um, they certainly, I mean, and, you know, part of the problem, and so people say to me when I give my talk, uh, this is great, Ward, and you're a nice guy and you wear a nice suit and, you know, it seems very persuasive. But, you know, Eisenhower said nuclear weapons are important. And there are countries around the world that race to get nuclear weapons, and they treat them as if they're important. So how could you be right that they're not important? And the answer is that human beings have this amazing capacity to give value to objects that are otherwise meaningless. And if you don't believe me, take out your wallet and look at the piece of paper that you have in your hand. It is just a piece of paper with some ink and pictures and numbers on it. But we have all collectively decided that money will be what's really valuable, will represent what's really valuable in life. And so what I think happened to nuclear weapons is the same thing. After World War II, nuclear weapons became the currency of power. They became that thing that gave you status and made you seem powerful to other nations. And so the North Koreans have gotten some benefit. They've gotten economic aid in exchange for stepping back from their nuclear weapons program at different times. But I think that's not a function of how valuable the weapons are, really. I think it's a function of how much the current having them be a currency of power exaggerates their importance, inflates it. And I, I think that the thing with currency is that it can crash at any time. What what we found out with the real estate boom is that, you know, prices that go up can fall. So So how do you uh you're arguing for a devaluation of this currency, right, of, of, of the idea of nuclear, the effectiveness of nuclear weapons. Yep. On the other hand, we we don't want North Korea having nuclear weapons, do we? No. And it's a complicated process, uh, getting the world to get rid of nuclear weapons. But I tell you what, if the United States said, and I'm, I'm not advocating that they get rid of their nuclear weapons, that we get rid of our nuclear weapons unilaterally. I think that would be a mistake. But if the United States said, well, we used to think nuclear weapons were great, but we've realized they're not as valuable as they are, as we thought, and we're downgrading their importance in our military. We're going to keep them, but we're not going to treat them as the essential weapon. We're going to focus on drones and precision-guided munitions and and the things that we do really well. And then 
I think the rest of the world would say, oh, well, the big guys don't believe in these weapons anymore. And that would undermine the currency of nuclear weapons considerably around the world. Hmm. Uh, another example would be Pakistan. We, I, I think we've been probably rightly fearful. We, we saw the Taliban take over in Afghanistan. Uh, you know, what if Taliban, for example, were to take over a nuclear power? Pakistan. And the more nuclear weapon states that you have, and we've been adding a nuclear weapon state on average one every five years, the more nuclear weapon states you have, the more chances there are that you'll get a state that collapses. You get a guy who's selling nuclear weapons out the back door. You'll get a state that supports terrorism. And then that's a serious problem. Uh, so I, I think it is past time to deal with this issue. It's something we can do. Um, you know, I think it makes sense to, to do the sensible thing. And what is the sensible thing? How do you, maybe this would be a good time to, to go to your, the third myth, do you, or the fifth, which is, I don't know. The genie. This, the, the, the genie one. This is, this seems to be, I don't know, it seems to be impossible to me that we can't, the, the myth is, you say we can't put the nuclear genie back in the bottle. You say we can't? Well, I say that it's, um, People say all the time, you can't disinvent nuclear weapons. And the reason it's such a powerful argument, it's absolutely true. You can't disinvent nuclear weapons. It also happens to be absolutely irrelevant because no technology is ever disinvented. That's not the way it goes away. Technology goes away one of two ways. Either better technology comes along or people realize it was stupid technology to begin with and they let it go. So one example would be Penny farthings. Those are those bicycles around the turn of the century with one big wheel in front, a little wheel in back. You always see guys with big mustaches riding them. They were difficult to get up on and dangerous to fall off of. And no one said, you'll never get the penny farthing genie back in the bottle. You know, better bicycles came along and the penny farthing just went away. It didn't have to be disinvented. It's technology, how they were made, didn't have to be forgotten. Or... My favorite is the Hiller VZ-1. It's a platform about uh, the size of a coffee table uh, with a helicopter blade underneath. And a, it, it could raise a single soldier 15 to 20 feet off the ground. It is really, I've seen pictures, it's really cool technology. But it never caught on. Maybe because some people nicknamed it the, here I am, totally exposed absolutely vulnerable death platform. <laughs> and and so you didn't have to disinvent that technology. It just went away. The question is not whether or not you can, you can or cannot disinvent nuclear weapons. The question is, are they smart military technology? If they are, let's keep them. If they're not, all this stuff about disinvention doesn't, is beside the point because people will move on to whatever the next thing is. And, and I should say that the trend in war is all away from nuclear weapons. The trend is towards smaller, smarter, more precise, more stealthy. And no one is trying to build bigger, blunter, more clumsy weapons. So uh, I think we're on the right side of history if we, if we, if we start to think about doing something sensible with nuclear weapons. 
Take another break. Uh, when we come back, we'll talk more with Ward Wilson, a senior fellow at the Center for Nonproliferation Studies at the Monterey Institute of International Studies, the Utah Humanities Council, in collaboration with Heal Utah and UCAN, Utah Campaign Against Nuclear Weapons, is presenting an appearance uh, by, by uh, Ward Wilson at the Salt Lake City Public Library. And that'll be happening tomorrow evening at 7 o'clock. It's free and open to the public. Uh, Ward Wilson's book is Five Myths About Nuclear Weapons. You're welcome to join this conversation if you'd like at upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at gmail.com. You can join us on our Utah Public Radio Facebook page, or you can call us at 1-800-826-1495. More with Ward Wilson following the break. Dr. Zorba Pastor from Zorba Pastor On Your Health is coming to Utah. Dr. Pastor will give a free presentation titled Three Simple Steps to Ultimate Health on Friday, October 18th at Moab Regional Hospital. His address will be followed by a reception. Space is limited, so go to upr.org for registration information. Zorba Pastor will headline other events in Moab and Logan. You can find out more about those at upr.org. And Zorba Pastor's visit in Moab is sponsored by USU Moab and Moab Regional Hospital. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Archway Inn in Moab. Offering lodging between the Red Rock Cliffs and Buttes of the Colorado River, two miles from Arches National Park, and 30 minutes from Dead Horse Point in Canyonlands National Park. Information at archwayin.com. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Ward Wilson is my guest for the hour. Uh, he is with the Center for Nonproliferation Studies of the Monterey Institute of International Studies. He's coming to Utah. His appearance is tomorrow evening, 7 p.m., Salt Lake City Public Library, presented by Utah Humanities Council, uh, along with Heal Utah and the Utah Campaign Against Nuclear Weapons. His book is Five Myths About Nuclear Weapons. And we have this email from Steve. He says the world's worst-kept secret is that Israel has an arsenal of about 400 nuclear weapons. Israel also has, far and away, the most powerful conventional military force in the Middle East. So does Israel's enormous cache of nukes help help peace prospects hurt them or make no difference at all? Well, um, two things. One is that what's interesting about Israel's arsenal— is that um, in 1973, everyone knew back then that Israel had nuclear weapons. It had been reported in the New York Times. But that didn't stop the Egyptians and the Syrians from attacking Israeli forces in the occupied territories. And um, it's a real conundrum. It's another one of these deterrence failures that don't get talked about. I mean, if there was ever a situation in which a country would fear for its existence if it were attacked, it's Israel. It's only nine and a half miles across at its narrowest point. You break through in the Golan Heights and you can be in uh, Tel Aviv uh, that, uh, that evening. So the Israelis should have, if deterrence theory works and you're threatened with an existential threat, then you should use nuclear weapons. and the Syrians and the Egyptians should have been deterred by that risk that the Israelis would see it as an existential, you know. Um, but they weren't deterred. They they talked themselves out of 
the danger of nuclear attack somehow. And that's part of the problem with human beings. We're really good at rationalizing uncomfortable things away and talking ourselves into the idea that, well, they won't really, we don't have to worry, whatever. So we we talk about, you know, um, who would be the country that would give up nuclear weapons last? And uh, I, I don't think it would be Israel. I think their conventional uh, forces give them, and their alliance with the United States, gives them a measure of security that uh, would allow them to see to think rationally about nuclear weapons. I think the people who would be least likely to give up, who would give up nuclear weapons last, would be France. Because nuclear weapons are part of the French identity. They are, you know, uh, essential to what it means for France to be a great power. Without nuclear weapons, France is just a middle-sized power with really good cuisine. Mm. I can see, though, how if, if you think put on the, you know, the Israeli general staff hat, um, they obviously were concerned about Iran enough to, to bomb a plant there. And, and the thinking could be in a lot of situations, nuclear weapons may not be that effective and the trend is going away from it. But in a small country like Israel with a, with a neighbor potentially willing to use nuclear weapons, it could cause a whole lot of damage. Well, see, I think. From my perspective, and I may not see it the way that the Israelis do, but it seems to me that small countries should be the ones that push for nuclear, you know, some kind of serious uh, treaty on nuclear weapons, much more than large countries. Because let's face it, you could use 20 nuclear weapons against the United States and we would survive. It would be horrible and devastating and, you know, a catastrophe beyond imagining. But we would survive. But in a country as small as Israel, with the radiation spreading around, 20 nuclear weapons could do a lot more damage. So it seems to me small countries, uh, Israel, the UK to a certain extent, should really press for uh, you know, getting these weapons out of other countries' arsenals. And, and obviously that's what the Israelis do. They, they don't want other people to have nuclear weapons. But it doesn't necessarily mean that they wouldn't be willing to give them up themselves. They have done pretty well in conventional wars in the Middle East. I suppose the thinking, though, would be it's you know it's a deterrence. If if we Israel have weapons like this, you bomb us, we bomb you, inflict pain on you. Uh, you're saying that that idea of t- deterrence isn't all that effective. Well, it depends. I mean, deterrence works some of the time. There's no question. Nuclear deterrence works some of the time. The problem is, what if somebody talks himself into believing that it won't work this time or that it shouldn't work or that it's safe to ignore it? And then, you know, you get a nuclear exchange and it escalates and, you know, then then we have a catastrophe and it's too late to start being reasonable. Uh, this idea of putting the nuclear genie back in the bottle, um, what what would be a way forward? What do, What do you think we ought to do? I think the crucial first step in any move towards sensible thinking on nuclear weapons is uh, is a mental uh, is to change the way we think. As long as nuclear weapons, I mean, the thing about the genie is that it's very psychologically suggestive. I mean, it tells us a lot about what proponents of nuclear weapons actually think, because in their minds, nuclear weapons are 
the genie. They are magic. You rub the lamp and wave your nuclear weapon around and people will do whatever you say. But the fact is, there are no weapons that are magic. You know, there's no magic bullet that's going to keep you safe in all circumstances. Weapons are weapons. They're tools we use or we don't use. And, and so I think the first step is to stop imagining that nuclear weapons are awesome magic and to look at them and see them for what they are, which is relatively clumsy kind of bull in a china shop weapons that, that are really good at killing civilians, but that's not really what we want to do. We want to win the war. I mean, I'm, I was talking about this a little bit when I went and spoke at the I went and talked to the Pentagon at the A-10 Directorate of the Air Force, which is the uh, policy planning and strategy long-term thinking staff there. And we had a really great talk. And um, because I talk about pragmatic stuff and history, we really um, had a great exchange. They weren't per, per, you know, completely persuaded that we should get rid of nuclear weapons or you know, change the way we... But, but we had a, a, a good discussion. And and I said to them, look, I want the United States to be safe. I want this country to be, you know, as protected as it, as it can possibly be. I'm just worried that we are invested in weapons that have a false reputation for keeping us safe. That's what I'm worried about. I, so, and they got that. No. Well, of course, at the end of the day... Um, nuclear weapons probably always will have this this aura surrounding them, and in part, rightly so, because uh, they're the only weapon, right, that could that could end humanity. Well, it kind of depends which aura you give them, you know. And uh, and there's, I mean, I, it's possible that a nuclear war could lead to the end of everything, but I think that. Um, it's a complicated question that we don't really know that much about. There are six, 700 million people living in the Southern Hemisphere. There are no nuclear weapons there, and there are no targets there. Um, so even if we had a nuclear war in the North, and even if there were severe climatic consequences, and even if there were biological evolutions or mutations or something, you know, it's not... It's not clear that that means the end of the world. And I think, I think the thing about thinking about it in terms of the end of the world, what that does is if nuclear war is apocalypse, we all know what apocalypse is. Apocalypse is something that is in the hands of God. So if nuclear war is apocalypse, then we have no choice but to simply sit back and pray or you know, accept what God wills. But if nuclear weapons are just tools that we can use wisely or not, we can choose to have or not choose to have, then then it's an entirely different problem, and we can take control of it. And, you know, we banned chemical weapons, and we banned biological weapons, and those were sensible steps. There's, uh, there's no reason not to look at that kind of solution for nuclear weapons as well, it seems to me.
That's a good place to end it, and we're, we're out of time. Uh, Ward Wilson is a senior fellow at the Center for Nonproliferation Studies of the Monterey Institute of International Studies. You have a chance to uh, hear Mr. Wilson talk more about these, um, these topics, interact with him if you're going to be in the Salt Lake City area tomorrow evening. He's appearing at the Salt Lake City Public Library tomorrow evening, 7 o'clock, free and open to the public. This appearance is presented by the uh, Utah Humanities Council in collaboration with Heal Utah and the Utah Campaign Against Nuclear Weapons. The book is... Five Myths About Nuclear Weapons. Ward Wilson, thank you so much. Oh, thank you, Tom. It was really great. I appreciate it. Coming up tomorrow, we have a broadcast from the Logan Regional Hospital with Dr. Zorba Pastor from Zorba Pastor on Your Health. Hope you'll tune in. We'll go behind the scenes with the program and uh, talk about uh, Dr. Zorba Pastor's uh, ideas on, on medicine. Uh, you have a chance to uh, get your questions in as well by email or on Facebook. That's tomorrow morning on Access Utah. For uh, today, for producer Bennett Purser, I'm Tom Williams. Thanks for listening today. Make your reservations now for dinner with Zorba Pastor of Zorba Pastor on Your Health. Enjoy a vegetarian or meat selection and a festival of fall flavors prepared by the chefs at Herm's Inn in Logan, Thursday, October 17th. This private dinner will benefit local programming on Utah Public Radio. Reservation details about UPR's dinner with Public Radio's favorite doc, Zorba Pastor, online at upr.org. Right before the leaves turned in Cache Valley, there were other color-changing indicators that fall was coming. The Kokanee and Porcupine Reservoir turned blood red and swam upstream with all the might of their fat reserves. And the sage and rabbit brush bloomed yellow, transforming the high desert west into fields of gold. It was so cold in the morning the last time I went camping that there were no smells. But that's what it's like this time of year in Utah. The frosty mornings can turn into 70 glorious degrees, And as the sun's rays hit the ground uninterrupted, they heat up the sagebrush, releasing that evergreen, camphory, herby scent that we know as home. It also sets off my allergies, dormant since May. It's a weird reminder of spring, these symbolic plants relaxing and blooming after brutally hot and dry months. It's pretty confusing to be sneezing your brains out while most of the foliage around you shrivels up and falls to the ground. In Alabama, the pipe smoke humidity and sickly sweet smell of wisteria can make you sick to your stomach, especially if you're used to breathing in dust until your nose bleeds. When I arrived in Alabama of August 2001, I thought I would never stop sweating. I thought I would never get used to an atmosphere that pressed on your shoulders and sat on your lap like a full-grown person. I didn't know if I would ever be able to get used to living outside of the West. I missed junipers and bluebirds, and the poetry I was there to write came out as heavy and tearful as the muggy air. I was studying under the poet Bruce Smith, and I confided to him how I was suffering and that my homesickness for a familiar landscape was crippling my writing. He said, don't make up your mind about this place until October. In October, he said, the humidity would break like a spell. The skies would open up and let the sun shine through, and all kinds of flowers would come out that had been hiding in the cool ground all summer long. Even the iconic magnolias, whose petals had yellowed like newspaper, would put all of their energy into producing giant cones with ruby-red seeds. A different kind of grandeur he thought I would appreciate. A utilitarian blossom with no odor. He was right. I stayed for four Octobers in Alabama, even though Bruce, the poet I traveled across the country to apprentice, left that following spring, the lavish and cloying season when I thought I needed him most. There are plants all over the world that bloom in the fall. 
When the heat breaks, when the rains fall, when the wind starts blowing, when the ground threatens to freeze. There are crocuses in my neighborhood. The same flower that is the first to crack the ice and blossom in the snow breaks through the mud and leaf litter to show off its delicate lavender petals amid the harvest browns and reds. The crocus that yields saffron, crocus sativa, is also an autumn bloomer, bringing the wealth, power, and rarity of the world's most expensive spice to October. It's like that last burst of energy you get before going to sleep. It's like the feast of harvest before the hunkering down of winter. One last hurrah before hibernation. October is the spring of the end of the year. It's the sigh of relief. I'm happy to be back in the land of the sagebrush, especially when it bolts in late summer and gets ready to wave yellow arms of flowers in the chilly northern breezes of fall. I did get used to the prolific seasons of the South, but I always looked forward to October, and I let that hope keep me looking for the bright side of everything new that was coming my way. And even though I feel like I'm at home now, I recognize that adaptation to a place is a continuous activity, and that awareness of the changes occurring all around us keeps us on top of it all. It's a bad idea with my allergies, but I like to bring Autumn's bounty into the house. A rabbit brush flower looks nice with a branch of yellow aspen. I leave the blazing maples where they're at. I watch the colors march down the mountainsides, but the yellow pollens and seeds that defy the season are the ones I want to preserve. They're the ones I want on my kitchen table or at my bedside, as tightly packed with meaning as a poem. I'm Jennifer Pemberton, and this is Utah Public Radio. Access Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. You can listen to this episode or previous episodes of Access Utah anytime at upr.org, where you can find a link to subscribe to our podcast. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 89.5 Logan, KUSK HD1 88.5 Vernal, KUSL HD1 89.3 Richfield, KUST HD1 88.7 Moab, and KUSU FM HD1 91.5 Logan. Dr. Zorba Pastor from Zorba Pastor on Your Health is coming to Utah. And you're invited to his free presentation, Living a Long Sweet Life, at the Logan Regional Hospital on Thursday, October 17th. The presentation includes lunch, but space is limited, so register now at upr.org. Zorba Pastor will headline other events in Logan and Moab. You can find out more about those at upr.org. Zorba Pastor's visit to Logan is sponsored by Intermountain Logan Regional Hospital.